Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hello, it's Bruce. It's Bruce Daisley. Thank you so much for listening. I'm really grateful. A couple of points of housekeeping before we kick off, actually. Thank you for making my book, Fortitude, a Sunday Times bestseller again. It was back in the top 10 nonfiction chart last week, and it's lovely to see it out in paperback. I, For, for me, the paperback release of a book is the real moment it's arrived. So uh, I'm delighted and I'm getting some lovely messages from people who are picking it up and getting a lot from it. A lot in the teaching community, actually. So, you know, I've always appreciated people in different places, but it's really thrilling to see that it's sort of taking hold in certain pockets of, of the, uh, the, the readership. So thank you for that. Secondly, if you think you could add something to this podcast or you think it's missing something, um, I'd like you to think about uh, an offer that I'm, I'm reflecting on here. I personally feel that this podcast could be faster moving. It could be re- more responsive. It could be just a more interesting, dexterous response to the way that work is evolving. And to do that, I'm interested in adding a different perspective. So I've got an opportunity to add a co-host, I guess. And, you know, I'm really open-minded about what that looks like or whether that's a series of co-hosts that I go through occasionally. And so what I'm looking for is someone who has got an interest in work, got an interest in psychology, got an interest in, in the themes that all of us are facing in our jobs. Ideally, I want to work with someone who has a different perspective to me, probably looks and feels different to me because I know that actually work is about complexity and and different aspects on it. So if you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in joining me as a co-host, please go to eatsleepworkrepeat.com forward slash host. That link is in the show notes. I can't make any promises, but I'm just interested in whether I can make the podcast fresher and more interesting by adding more depth to it. Right, on with today's show. Now, there's a theme that I often return to. It's the notion of of narrative fallacy, that the idea that we perceive the whole of life and the, the world that we live in as a story arc. And the mistake we make is thinking that we're closer to the happy ever after than the middle or the start. And one of the ways that I think that's having a bearing can be seen in the resonance of how we're talking about the local election results. In the UK here, there were local elections last week. And one of the themes that have come out in the drubbing that the Conservatives got was a discussion that a lot of people don't want new housing built in their area. That a lot of people, for them, it's an issue f- in local politics that they don't want more houses built and and their area becoming more congested or their transport becoming more cluttered. Simultaneously, we've clearly got a really interesting challenge where we've got a massive surplus of office space. Leesman, I put it in the newsletter a few weeks ago, but Leesman are... Uh, making forecasts saying that the demand for commercial real estate could drop by 40%. And I did a whole newsletter on this a couple of weeks ago, where simultaneously we have this dissonance. There's a change in the the usage of office space. There's 
an increased demand for housing. By one measure, there's a shortage of 4 million homes in the UK. So a lot of people now, a lot of people may be listening to this, may never have the ambition of owning property in their lifetime because it's beyond their reach. That's a dysfunctional society. And yet we've got this situation where a whole load of commercial real estate won't be being used. It seems like there's a dissonance there and no one is seeking to address it. So today's guest, to some extent, is going to help reflect on those themes. Draw Poleg is a writer and speaker who is focused on the future of work, future of cities, how AI and technology intersects with those things. He's been regularly seen in the likes of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times. He's a go-to person when it comes to thinking about how the internet is impacting the way that we use cities and what the consequences are for the future of work. He's such a thoughtful thinker because in a way that so few people are able to, he's able to think about how big themes are changing and the implications of them. I've always loved reading his posts. I've loved hearing other interviews with him. And I think you're going to get a lot from this discussion. So uh, Draw Poleg is an author and speaker. In fact, he created a course with one of our former guests, Anthony Slumbers. He created a course on space as a service and, and how commercial real estate is adapting. So he's connected to some of the people we've had on previously. But I'll let him introduce himself because he he does a much better job of it. Before we start today's episode, if you're like any of us, you've got an interest right now in reflecting on how AI is going to impact our jobs. And I just wanted to mention an event that I'll be speaking at later this month and give you the chance to sign up for free. I'm speaking at a Microsoft employee experience event. It's called Optimizing the Employee Experience in the Age of AI. On the 25th of May, as well as me, there's keynotes from Alexia Kamban, Senior Director of Modern Work Research at Microsoft, Nick Hederman, Senior Director of Modern Work at Microsoft, as well as a panel discussion with communication and HR leaders from firms like Carlsberg and EDP. From the preview I've seen, it's set to be a dazzling event. And if you want to attend for free, the link is in the show notes. So that's a free Microsoft event, optimizing the employee experience in the age of AI. On the 25th of May, sign up in the show notes. I wonder if you could kick us off by just introducing who you are and what you do. Oh, you started with the hardest question. So I'm an author focused on the future of work, cities and buildings. Uh, I spent two decades in private equity real estate development and in tech and online media. And over the past seven or eight years, I've been really focusing on the the intersection of these two worlds. So how technology uh, affects the built world, how the built world interacts with technology and enables innovation and human flourishing. Uh, and out of these two topics, I also explore whatever else I think is relevant. So, you know, things like uh, income distribution, new ways of uh, enabling, providing safety nets and enabling people to to thrive and experiment uh, down to even geopolitics whenever I think it's relevant. But uh, I think Future of work tends to capture a lot of that because, you know, it has technology in it and it has all the other pieces as well. So that's what I do. Yeah, your, your output is hard to second guess because I subscribe to your Substack to, to see this book about the evolving nature of work that you're putting together in real time. But I, I saw last week that you were offering a course on understanding generative AI. And so you're hard to pin down. You seem to be someone who's just curious about how... Our, our evolving relationship with the future is that right yeah i mean i'm i always it's very hard to explain what my specific topic and i think my readers usually do it better than i do uh, and i am concerned sometimes that i kind of drag them into all sorts of places that they didn't necessarily plan to go to but you know when i write for example a book about the future of work or future of offices and then i see the latest advancements in ai I cannot just keep writing the same book that I was writing. I have to stop and understand, okay, right. what is going on? How does that affect my work? How does that affect my reader's work? Uh, you know, and, and and I love tinkering with things. So, you know, I start getting hands-on with it and then I get people asking me to help them do that. And then I say, okay, let's let's do a course about it. 
And in the course of the course, think of how that connects back to the kind of main topic. So how does that affect the future of work? What impact does it have on offices? What impact does it have on cities? What impact does it have on demographics and income distribution? Uh, so in a way, my work is very eclectic, but in other ways, I think those that have been following it for a long time, there's some really clear common threads that uh, uh, between everything. Uh, and I feel... Part of the medium of writing online rather than, you know, publishing in a newspaper or just writing books that you write and then they come out two years later, you have that ability to constantly respond to what's going on, uh, which in a way sometimes can be even perplexing for me and for the readers. And I'm like, oh, why am I writing about this this week instead of writing about that other thing? But on the other hand, you're like, okay, how can I not write about this this week? This is the most important thing that's going to affect all those other things. So, uh, I think writing online gives you the freedom to to be more eclectic. And I think what people need these days is that eclecticism. I mean, you cannot understand one topic without, you cannot think about real estate without thinking about AI, for example. Uh, and, you know, and you cannot think about cities without thinking about the future of work. And you can't think about the future of work without understanding the dynamics within cities and how things actually get built and done and, you know, uh, beyond just thinking about it in the abstract to actually understand how things are financed, who is in charge, who makes the decision, what is stopping things from being the way you think they should be to begin with. Uh, and, and how did it all evolve until this point historically? So let's sort of try and start going through those. You've given me so many prompts to hopefully uh, punctuate the conversation. But did your interest in the evolution of the future of work start with the fact that you were in commercial real estate? Is that your start point for it? Or do you think, the, because to some extent, commercial real estate was a, was a reasonable start point. Any company that wanted to set up needed a, a place to do its business. And now it's less the case. So mm -hmm. I just wonder, when you're thinking about the relationship between work and commercial real estate, how do you use that as a basis for projecting what you think is coming next? So in terms of my initial relationship, I'd say my work begins and ends with the internet. So I kind of grew up on it, you know, starting from the mid nineties when I was a teenager. And very early on, I started dealing with the intersection of the internet and the offline world. Uh, in high school, that meant writing online about music and then producing parties and inviting my readers to come to offline events and kind of starting to see the connections between the two, both socially and for, for business. Uh, then I got into commercial real estate development and investment, and my focus was actually mostly on retail property, so on developing shopping malls in China, of all places. And there too, with retail, you know, there was a strong kind of consumer component. Uh, the internet was much more relevant to retail 20 years ago than it was to offices and housing, you know, because we were worried about e-commerce and also at, at, at the buildings themselves, we were dealing already with a lot of what we now call prop tech. You know, we had sensors, we were connected to our customers' point of sale systems. We were dealing with mobile payments, with location-based services, with tracking people in various ways. So that was kind of part and parcel of what we just called real estate. Uh, but then as I kind of tried to leave that world almost 10 years ago and kind of got a little tired of real estate and got a little tired of, of China as well, I suddenly realized that there was a lot of overlap between tech and real estate that I was dealing with kind of implicitly, but that now is starting to become a topic of conversation and a topic of interest. And as I was looking at that topic, I realized that there's a lot of things that are going on that are very, very relevant and that nobody's talking about, that nobody kind of points out or that many people don't understand. Uh, so I started writing about it myself particularly from more of an institutional perspective. So less about, you know, technology for property managers, but more about how technology changes the nature of real estate itself, like the, the type of cash flow and stability that it has, uh, the type of financial returns that people can expect from it, its role as an asset within the portfolios of pension funds and banks, uh, etc. Uh, which meant that on the technology side, I wasn't just looking at tech for real estate, but more about asking myself, what will technology do to real estate? Which then very quickly sends you to places like, you know, how it will affect how people work, how it will affect where people choose to live or how many children they have or the size of cities or all sorts of things that 
historically, when you look at them, you see the technology's role in really changing all of those things, you know, like centralizing work and then distributing it and making cities larger or smaller or near places with water or near places that are easy to to access coal or near places that are easy for trains, like whatever the, the dominant technology and source of energy of the time, uh, that basically dictates, you know, where people work and live much more than, you know, prop tech or like some sensor for an elevator or like a, you know, tenant engagement app or a lot of the stuff that a lot of real estate people were focused on. Uh, so I started looking at that and to bring it back to the future of work, I think that it kind of connected in two ways. One from that direction of just like, it's an important story within real estate. And second, from my personal interest, I've lived the life of, of kind of adventure, you know, of constantly thinking, okay, what do I want to do? How do I reinvent myself? How do I enter a new market and remain relevant? So it, it, it kind of connects from both directions. You know, a, lo- a lot of my writing kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of academic and businessy on the one hand, but it's also very personal because I write about stuff that I'm, interested in and that I'm concerned about and that I feel are going to affect my own career uh, as I try to just, you know, make a nice living with dignity on this planet and, you know, raise a family. I think it all comes together to my work. You touch on a number of things there about how, I guess, work in the past has been distributed near to sources of whether it's energy or sources of demand for, for various products. How, when, when you're looking now then at where we currently are. Do you believe that the city centre of the future, of the immediate future, is going to look fundamentally different to the one we're witnessing now? Because people, we've got this strange liminal state that we appear to be in right now, where offices appear to be used in the, the mean case. They appear to be being used three days a week. And it's um, it seems like a highly inefficient use of an asset class. And you mentioned additionally the fact that commercial real estate is quite often owned by pension funds. So pension funds and our, and our retirement are contingent on this asset class sort of preserving its value. How, how do you see our relationship with how we use the office changing and, and what impact will that have on those investors? So I think cities will evolve to do what only cities can do and what cities can do best which very clearly seems to mean being places where more people live and where there's more social interaction and where there's even more economic activity, but not necessarily economic activity that depends on people wearing suits uh, sitting next to each other for nine hours a day uh, on the same floor. So I think there might be even more business and even work within cities, but a lot of that will happen in all sorts of places and in all sorts of ways that are a little different from uh how, you know, our cities are currently designed. Uh, so in many ways, you know, the, the the paradigm of our cities, the way they're designed, it's kind of like a 70 or 50 year old uh, kind of notion. And we already know that that notion is no longer relevant or at least not as dominant or important as it once was. The challenge is that it's not so easy for cities to change. So, you know, we've been talking, I've been written, I've, I've written, and I think you have as well about, you know, the conversions of office buildings into housing, for example, uh, which is a wonderful idea in theory. Uh, I think it will have a significant impact on both the housing and the office market. But at the same time, most office buildings cannot be converted to housing and will not be converted to housing over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. Uh, so I think we'll start to see more of like office adjacent uses within office buildings. So both, you know, healthcare, education, certain types of dry logistics, uh, more meeting rooms, and also maybe just kind of like a a lower level of utilization going forward and maybe even a lower value for a lot of these assets going forward without their situation being resolved you know they'll just they might become cheaper and less relevant and less dominant and less important but they're just still going to be there uh you know when you look at farms and factories they're both still around and they're both very very important in many ways to uh, to our life here on earth but they don't define our culture anymore. They don't dominate our skylines. They don't kind of, they're not prioritized when planning other uses within cities in the same way that they were, you know, 100 or 150 years ago. So I think the same thing will happen to offices. Even if they stay there, I think our cities will no longer be designed around them and around the people who commute to them, which is what we currently have. You know, most cities, 
it's the office first and then everything else is kind of designed around the needs of the offices and the corporations within those offices. And I think we'll see a, a weakening of that uh, tendency. But what you described there is, um, is the fact that change is far more gra- gradual, far more glacial. It's sort of, it, it's, uh, I guess, waiting for things to fall out of their natural usage. And it suggests then that you might find places around the world that agitate to change that. So, you know, the, the thing that struck me, I saw in one of your interviews that you did with someone, an expert on uh, repurposing, um, were, and, and they talked about 30% of office buildings could be repurposed into residential. And and, and they talked a lovely sort of uh, a, a picture of it because they said that what makes for bad commercial real estate often makes for really good residential. You know, uh, low ceilings in offices are perceived as very high ceilings in residential. So a, lo- a lovely element there. And um, what struck me was that if we're going to be faced with the situation that a lot of city centres now, anytime I go into London on a, city, on a Friday, it's it's empty. And it's actually mm-hmm. emptier on Friday than it is on Sunday. And that has repercussions, as you mentioned there, for the viability of restaurants, the viability for retail units. Um, and I just wonder if the scope for governments around the world that we might look back in uh, two years time, five years time and say, wow, what France did was really progressive or what yeah, Australia did was a far quicker transition to a new equilibrium. I wonder if you've got any sense of whether that's the case, that whether there is a, an opportunity to catalyze a quicker transition. There is. Frankly, the biggest opportunity to catalyze is it is to just let it happen. I think most cities are very kind of rigid by choice. You know, they have very clear zoning or land use uh, rules. Uh, they have very long permitting processes. Uh, so I think th- this is the main thing that's stopping cities from from evolving. So just by relaxing those things and letting them happen, not I'm not talking about you know don't regulate, don't care what people do, but maybe regulate or change regulation to a way that can accommodate different uses. For example, instead of saying here we must have offices and here we must have housing, just say okay here we're you know we're not allowed to have that level of noise or that level of pollution or you know this amount of traffic and beyond that, just let people build whatever they want there. I think that's a big difference. Is that a big issue at the moment? That that's it banding is, that? Yeah, it's a, it's a very big issue. I mean, cities, and that's also a heritage of the industrial era that still defines our lives more than, than both of us realize, you know, when factories started to, to kind of bother people within cities and also outside of cities, we saw the emergence of zoning laws that kind of really define uses very clearly about 110 years ago or so. Uh, in the U.S. and a little earlier than that, I think in, in Germany and other parts of Central Europe, that basically said, okay, it's not okay for all of these uses to be in the same place, so let's decide now that factories are going to be in that side of town or out of town, and people are going to live here, and offices are going to be there, and then design all of our transportation network around that. Uh, in many ways, what we are, I think what cities want to do now, cities like at their heart, not at the government, is to go back to kind of like a pre-industrial or early industrial kind of arrangement where it's much more mixed use, where there's much more room for experimentation, uh, where there's no planner that decides in advance what type of beha- of activities are going to take place somewhere and then kind of leaves that in, stuck in stone for the next 50 or 100 years. Uh, so we have to kind of roll back some of these regulations, but roll others that, that still make sure that, you know, that our cities are clean and safe and then, you know, maybe add some other things in terms of their general impact on the environment as well. So, you know, not uh, not turn them into like a, a chaotic uh, libertarian <laughs> kind of paradise, but like into something that, that that is regulated in a way that is consistent with uh, with the 21st century and is regulated in the way that is consistent with the fact that simply today it's not possible to know a lot of stuff that maybe in the past it was possible to know. I think in the industrial era, it was much easier to plan and to understand the needs of industry and to kind of put in place things that will remain relevant at least for 20 years and sometimes even for much longer. I think today, when you look at New York City and ask yourself, okay, what's going to be the main industry here in 20 years and what kind of office space or space will it need? It's very hard to answer this question. Uh, and I don't think anyone should try to answer it and you know make decisions based on it. So I think you want to create a an environment where things can emerge, but emerge while kind of maintaining some standard that serves the public in the way that matters. You know, it's not in the interest of the public to separate offices from housing. It is in the interest of the public to have a clean street or, you know, 
to be able to sleep at night or to be within walking distance to a park or a school. Uh, so we have to go directly to those needs rather than to try to control those kind of uh, proximate uh, <laughs> levers that government has been kind of pulling and pushing over the last 120 years. And the key draw of cities, as far as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, was, was that cities were used to be the source of a lot of high-paid jobs. And so people would migrate to cities because it improved their economic chances. And increasingly then, it begs the question whether high-paid jobs will migrate to cities or whether they need to, and to what extent the fundamental offering of a city has been disrupted and left left unable to, to, to readjust. You seem optimistic on the future of cities, but what, what's the take on that high-paid job element? I, I think it will remain important uh, for, for the foreseeable future. However, it will not remain the exclusive avenue for these type of things. So people will have more choice, which means that they'll still be want, they'll probably, a lot of them will want to live in cities and there'll be advantages to that, but they'll just have more options in terms of which cities they decide to go to, you know, so which means that some cities will, will rise and some cities will fall and maybe we'll see some new cities. Um, I, I don't see cities, like when I look at cities and the internet, I don't see the internet necessarily as a competitor to cities but as the largest city in the world. So when I look at that kind of uh, zip slow curve of, you know, the size of cities or like that parallel curve or like, you know, the largest city in the world and then all the ones that come after it, I see the internet as being added to that curve or even a few places within the internet being added to that curves, which will be the, the largest employment markets, the lar- largest socializing kind of venues, but they will still have big cities kind of coming after them. And some of those cities will be larger than ever because I think, our need to interact more intensively is now more important than it was a hundred years ago. Like our, our economy is increasingly dependent on us interacting, uh, not working in a very structured and planned way, bumping into each other in various ways. And also work itself, the services and the things that will drive the economy, I think over the next 50 years, a lot of them will be things that previously we didn't even think about as work or services, you know, just like entertaining each other, giving each other attention, playing with each other, whatever it is. And a lot of that is at a premium, at least when it happens offline, uh, at least for certain groups of people. And that may sound a little futuristic, but I think if you tell someone from 100 years ago or 120 years ago about a lot of the jobs that we do today, he would think that you're joking. You know, we have dog walkers and lactation consultants. And more importantly, within offices themselves, we have a lot of people that do a lot of stuff that might seem completely meaningless to someone who ran even an office 100 or 50 years ago. But just these people are now there. Whether they're needed or not, they're there and they're doing all sorts of things uh, that uh, in the past looked completely useless to us. And I think we're going to have many more of those seemingly useless jobs (laughs) <laughs> going forward. Tell me this, uh, is it even possible based on that uh, and based on the, the rapid speed of improvement of AI right now, is it even possible for us to make meaningful five-year predictions on this? The the, the dazzling speed of, of AI, um, to some extent, I think, you know, people would be forgiven last October in saying, oh, AI won't affect their job in the short term. And I, I think possibly anyone who's still saying that now, six months on, has not been remotely keeping up with what's going on. Is it even possible for us to make projections? I mean, if the average property rental used to be 10 years, who on earth can can foresee what their business will look like in 10 years now? Yeah, I think it's very, very hard. I think it was always hard, but it's getting increasingly harder. I think even the internet itself, we don't really understand exactly what it's going to do to us. Uh, and when you look back 20 years, you realize how much it has done to us already. And many of us didn't notice, you know, in terms of how we live, how we spend our time, where our attention is directed at, how we communicate, how we dress. It's And even the shape of our cities, you know, the industries that dominate it or don't, or, or don't dominate it, you know, in terms of like here in New York, a decade ago, when you compare the role of finance and how important it was and how much less important it is today as an industry uh, compared to tech. Uh, And also how much tech itself has eaten into finance. And even within the banks, you have tens of thousands of people who are programmers and product managers and and do all sorts of jobs that didn't exist 15 years ago, or at least were very marginal. 
uh, in the finance industry. So yeah, I think making those predictions is becoming increasingly hard, which is why I think cities should reposition themselves and rewrite their codes to be much more uh, you know, to enable them to be much more dynamic and to respond to a situation. I feel that particularly in the real estate world, people are kind of looking for the next answer, the next kind of cookie cutter, uh, you know, just tell us what's happening and then we'll go and build that. And then we will not have to think about it for another 20 years. And one of the hardest things is, is to explain to them like, yeah, no, nobody, <laughs> there is no such answer. You know, the answer is, that the nature of your asset has changed. It is just less stable than it was. Even your tenants have no idea what they're going to need in, in two years, let alone 10 or 15. And, you know, we'll just have to accommodate this new type of flexibility and uncertainty into the way we build things, into the way we price them, into the assumptions that we make about how stable or predictable the cash flow that they generate is. Uh, so, I mean, one of the main themes of my book, you know, that came out just before COVID was that technology, again, is undermining our basic assumptions about what real estate is, about the, its nature as a financial asset. So it's not just about, you know, people are going to work here or there or move or not move. It's about that stability that we had for, let's say, 70 years since World War II is just, it was, first, historically, it's an anomaly. It was a very unusual period in human history, and it's just not coming back. So it's not about finding the thing that will replace it. The thing that will replace it is like ongoing uncertainty and constant change. And and that's it. And you can make money off of that as well. It's not bad news, but but it's a different game. It begs the question then, if, if you were sort of being practically minded now, and, and I don't know whether this um, teases out what's going to be in your, your forthcoming book, but if you were being practically minded now, if you were advising the board of a company of what capabilities they need to needed to have or what um, what focus they needed to put into their ability to deal with various things. What would you advise them? How should they prepare for AI? How should they prepare for the changing nature of how we use commercial real estate? So first, the capability to learn and the desire to learn, which, you know, sounds like so obvious, but I think most real estate firms, this is not their focus and this is not something that they spend a lot of time on and they don't have like, you know... An ex- a big executive in charge of that that prioritizes it vis-a-vis other type parts of the organization. Second, I think one important thing real estate can learn from tech is the, the field of product management, of kind of having people that are in charge of the product as a whole and represent the customer within the development process and the operating process. And that constantly tie back feedback from the customer into the product itself and enable the product to constantly change. Uh, and of course, in real estate, it's not software. You can't like change stuff so dramatically all the time. But even just integrating these people into the development process, having someone who is not exactly the architect or designer, who is not like the project manager in terms of, you know, just making sure that the budget and everyone is on track, is not just an engineer, but someone who kind of thinks about, okay, what does this product actually deliver? Who does it serve? And how do I align every every decision that gets made through the development process uh, back to the needs of the customer? I think that's a big deal. Uh, third, specializing more in that type of design or development for for adaptability, for fluidity, for you know, for the assumption that you don't exactly know what people are going to do with this building and what they need it for. Uh, and fourth. It kind of falls under marketing and operation, but I think at a certain point when you add more power to it, it becomes a completely different business. I think another big change in real estate is that it's becoming a consumer product. It's becoming something that people have to choose every day rather than kind of be stuck in for 10 or 15 years, often based on the decision of somebody else when it comes to offices. Uh, and that means that you have to now position and brand your project or your space within a project in a way that appeals to a specific group of people. Now, historically for real estate, all of that meant very superficial things. You know, okay, let's give the building a name or let's put a little logo on it or let's build a website. But I'm talking about something much more, much deeper of the kind that you see in, in some of the best hotels, you know, that like really focusing on a specific segment of people that have a, even a specific task for that moment. You know, someone who's a business traveler alone in a large city and really wants to sleep well and has jet lag and needs like really dark rooms. 
that's, you know, some hotels are segmented down to that level or a family with two kids who is visiting the city for the first time and wants to be close to ABCD, but doesn't care about uh, WXYZ. So, so far in offices and even in apartments, we haven't seen that level of segmentation. And I think we are going to see it now. Uh, So I think real estate companies need both to consider incorporating that and also in some cases to do exactly the opposite, to tell themselves, actually, this is a different business. I can't do that as well as I would like to. I need to do less than I did before. I'm not going to even deal with the branding or the marketing of my projects. I'm really good at finding them and building them. I'm going to partner with another brand, with another operator, just like hotel developers do, and let them do the other stuff. You know, Let them decide the color of the wallpaper and the furniture and what type of food people want to eat and what kind of how to phrase the, my sentences when I say good morning to them. You know, it becomes a business in itself that I think most real estate companies probably don't want to deal with. Uh, which then hints at a bigger change in the industry as well in terms of its structure. Like, you know, we'll have different types of companies handling different types of activities, catering to different types of investors that, you know, some people just want to buy real estate shares and get like a get the check every month with regularity. And some people want to invest in a business that's growing that might become uh, 50 times larger in 10 years. And these are two very different businesses. And both of them will be built within the real estate industry. But uh, they need to be financed and managed very differently. When you were talking there about sort of the core capability of businesses going forward will be um, the ability to learn and be learning focused. It sort of really struck me that how often um, the the systems that a, a business is constructed upon um, produces stasis. So, you know, the, the way that we used to use the office before, I don't think anyone fully recognized the extent to which it created this monoculture that everyone went to an office at a certain place yeah. at a certain time. You witnessed each other, you know, cities were consumed with this rush in one direction, this rush in another direction, and yet none of us perceived it was a model that we were locked into. Mm-hmm. And now, increasingly, I think, when, when you talked to, to me there about the need to have a learning culture, actually the status is for most organizations is defined by a couple of things that they don't even believe are decisions, which are calendar, the fact that everyone has an electronic calendar that's shared, that anyone can put a to-do list item in each yeah. other's day is something that no one would consider that's a cultural decision, but it's, it's a, such an established norm. Or um, the messaging system that you use, the fact that mm-hmm. you know anyone can send anyone a message. You have license you to distract each other. Right, <laughs> absolutely. But no one would perceive that. And the same that we we didn't perceive the office before as mm-hmm. part of the reason for stasis. I, I chatted to someone last week and she told me, she works in a retail firm, and she told me that um, every single thing that passes her team's desk right now, she's saying to them, First, we need to ask ChatGPT, and and every so we need to write a brief for this. Right, let's give it to ChatGPT, and she's doing that specifically with a view that week two they are so fundamentally better at getting good responses out of of, of ChatGPT. Now, most organisations, when I go and chat to organisations and I say to them, "How are you using this?" Some of them have played around with them at home in one evening um, or they've tried it once and moved on. But it's so interesting. A culture of learning being paramount in your organization looks so fundamentally different. It just, just strikes me that yeah. even though what you've said is obvious uh, or, or self-evident, most organizations probably won't be doing it. Right. And, and you kind of hinted at another aspect of it, the aspect of diversity in all of its various meanings, you know, like to to recruit people of different backgrounds, of different ages, of different, you know, professional expertise. So I mentioned product managers, but there's so many other types of kind of disciplines that are very uh, like underrepresented within real estate, including a lot of traditional business disciplines. I'm not even talking about tech or design, but, you know, people that are not necessarily uh, surveyors or MBAs, but there's so many other types of people that once you bring them into your company they have experience to contribute, especially if they worked in other industries. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of room to, uh, to improve and, uh, and grow on that front. As you're putting your book together, what are the, the big findings? What are the big conclusions that you would ask us to draw from that? So, so you're, you're writing this book in real time. People can uh, either subscribe to your Substack and receive a copy at the end or, um, or just enjoy the Substack as you're writing it. But tell me, what are the conclusions that you're, you're drawing? So one, I'm honest. 
I don't know yet where it will end okay. because I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm letting myself uh, be surprised, particularly with things that are happening, you know, as we speak, like chat GPT and those things, which as I mentioned, you know, it really forces me to stop and say, okay, what the hell is going on? Let's understand this thing. Clearly it impacts whatever I had in mind uh, a few months ago. Uh, but big picture, some of the, some of the things that we kind of touched on a little bit earlier, I think cities will become not less important but probably even more important in many ways, but much more so as places to live rather than just places to work. Uh, I think that we'll see kind of a, a redistribution of people along, uh, I call it like a long tail of location. So a bit like what happened in music where, you know, initially people thought, oh, the internet is just going to uh, democratize music and there'll be no more hits and everyone will be a star and people will just consume this kind of niche content. And, and actually what we did see happen was some of that, but also some movement in the exact opposite direction. So we see bigger hits than ever, and even like recycling of old hits, both in music and in cinema, where, you know, the only way to be sure that you're going to succeed is to recycle something that already succeeded. So all of those franchises and kind of remakes and, and covers. But at the same time, we also saw that, yes, there is this kind of long tail now of people kind of opting into smaller creators and listening to niche content and, you know, user generated stuff that suddenly uh, can become really big overnight. And I think this is an analogy to what we'll see in the world of geography as well. I think the larger cities that do well are going to be larger than ever, both denser in some ways, but also just larger because they, they now can kind of accommodate a larger metro because people don't have to commute every day at the same time. So suddenly, instead of kind of catering to, I don't know, people within 30 miles or 50 miles, you can cater to people within 120 miles and they'll still be part of the same metro and kind of have some relation to the center of that city and to the kind of uh, ring around it. Uh, and at the same time, we'll see more smaller places become a little kind of thicker or heavier, or attract more people, become more economically significant. Within this process, there will be opportunity for some of those smaller places to completely kind of pull ahead and become large like never before. And there will also be an opportunity for some existing large cities to fall behind and become completely irrelevant, especially if they kind of insist on doing so, you know, by not adapting uh, to change and by trying to force people to go back to the old way of doing things. Uh, and the office will both no longer be a place. It will be a network. So I think companies are not necessarily going to look at bringing someone into this box that we signed the 20-year lease for and look more for how can we empower our employees to have access to whatever space they need, wherever it is, uh, optimized for whatever task that they're trying to do today. So if they need to record a podcast near home, to ensure that they can tap a button and open a door somewhere that answers that question. If they need to meet with their team, something else. If they need to impress a client, another thing. If they need to work alone but don't want to be home, something different still. So I think to really think of it, you know, as Anthony says, space of a, as a service or really not thinking about space at all, you know, because customer clients at the end of the day or, or companies or individuals, they're, they're not looking for an office. They're just looking for a place to do whatever it is that they're trying to do uh, at that point, uh, which goes back to some of the, the kind of corporate and, uh, and financial changes that, that I mentioned earlier, which means that real estate companies have to think of themselves now more as networks, as kind of uh, brands that are focused on specific people with specific needs and to see how they can accommodate those needs. And sometimes that would mean bringing people to their own buildings. Sometimes it would mean bringing people somewhere else. Uh, so the whole way we think about this business of office and real estate, I think will will change quite significantly over the next 20 years in offices, but also in homes and in other kind of uh, adjacent uses. That uh, uh, to, to finish, deconstruct and sort of point out the flaws in this, if you could really. I, I guess I, for, yep. from my perspective, if I'm looking at the fact right now that we've got cities around the world, and not just big cities like New York and London, but cities like uh, in the UK, Sheffield and Leeds, and that have got mm-hmm. empty, empty city centres, and that you know yeah. people are working from home maybe two or three days a week, and these these cities that represented a, a sort of ecosystem that had a balance to them now had been disrupted to some extent then um the fact that in the uk we've got a shortage of four million homes and around the world mm-hmm. there's there's a shortage of homes that has led to an escalation of 
of residential property yeah. prices going up. If I was going to jump forwards 20 years, 15 years, and say there's a new equilibrium, it would be that we're using all that space in a new way. We've, we've rebalanced um, urban mm-hmm. living to the extent that maybe younger people in their 20s are able to afford to live in city centres because they're smaller, compact units, but the the dynamic force of living in the city centre is quite appealing. So to me, then it presents the question, okay, you you can definitely see that use case. Accelerating an ability to get there quicker seems to be actually an economic benefit for any city that can do it. Um, Do you see see Mm -hmm. that? sort of those stages playing out or is, or is that just trying to to project simplicity on something that's like it's more complex no i to- i totally see them again i i see cities as much more leaning towards residential than towards office i see them as much more walkable and less prioritizing of of cars uh, i see them as kind of much more focused on activities again that people do together so whether it is education or healthcare or things for old people uh that We'll tie that to demographic changes that we're undergoing. I think that cities have to adapt to. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to see all of that. And I also think we'll generally see more variance in the type of cities that we have. I think the industrial world created large cities all over the world that are very similar in many ways. Of course, some of them are still very different, like Houston is very different from, let's say, Manchester or London. Uh, but they had a lot in common and they had kind of like a... Again, almost like a cookie cutter. Like, you know, okay, there's a CBD here, people live here. Then there's like a ring of suburbs. I think we'll see more variants in terms of some cities going like really extreme in one direction. You know, extremely walkable, hostile to cars, don't care about offices at all, really live in communities with a lot of kind of stuff that people do near home. And we'll still have cities like some, particularly in America, you know, that are still very dependent on like cars or forms of transportation that are not very dense. Uh, I think we'll see both and both of them can grow. Uh, but people will have more choice in terms of, you know, voting with their feet and choosing what lifestyle fits them. Uh, so that kind of branding and variance that I mentioned in the world of offices and compared it to hotels, I think it will apply to cities as a whole as well. We'll see much clearer segmentation in terms of lifestyle and industrial focus, and uh, you know, bo- both in a good way and I think in a bad way as well. We'll see like more segregation also in some ways, in you know, groups of people right, like building cities that are for them, and also groups of people being left behind in cities where when other groups left because they chose to. You know, so a lot of maybe service workers or people uh, from different minorities that cities kind of force force them to live together with other people, and cities were kind of a compromise between people that want certain things and earn a lot of money, but want access to certain services. So they live next to other people who are like in a different socioeconomic class. And the people of the different socioeconomic class maybe suffer from the existence of these wealthier people because they make everything expensive, but they also create jobs. And maybe even there's a ladder between the two that allows one to grow from, to kind of graduate from one group into the other. Uh, I think now, unfortunately, we live in a world where, you know, each of those groups can kind of choose to live somewhere else, but the groups that consist of like upper middle class people that are knowledge workers have much more freedom. So they can actually self-select into smaller communities where they don't need to live next to other people anymore. But those other people in the city will not have as much freedom. Uh, so it's another challenge. How do you stay abreast of all of this stuff? Is there anyone that you read? Is there a book that you recommend? Is there, are there are there people that you would advise us to to stay uh, appraised of? Who who do you follow? Mostly, I read books and particularly older books. Uh, so you know, I read a lot of history. I always ask myself, you know, why are things the way they are, and what what basically. What forces held them together or shaped them, and are these forces still uh, still valid or still in force? Uh, so, you know, so I read a lot about the history of cities, the history of work, business, history in general. Uh, in terms of newsletters and blogs and recent things, I can't say that there's like someone that I read regularly. Uh, I'm I spend a lot of time on Twitter, so I, I curated a nice list of random people from all sorts of industries, and a bit like my advice to other organizations. It's my advice to myself as well of, you know, just be open and constantly learn. So, you know, if I see something happening, I, I kind of allow myself to stop other things and uh, to spend more time on that. I, I probably frustrates my readers sometimes and they don't understand where I'm taking them. 
but I feel like it's part of my responsibility to <laughs> to focus people's attention on what I think is relevant because in a couple of months they might think that it's relevant for them as well, and sometimes in a couple of years. Uh, so mostly reading and mostly reading older things uh, about why things are the way they are, and and also again reading random weird things that. Uh, might not seem relevant yet, but kind of, I have a hunch that, uh, that they might be. So I, I try to be generous with myself and let myself, uh, as my own boss, I try to let myself spend time on these things. And sometimes I feel guilty for doing so, but I remind myself that, that, that it's probably okay. And it's probably still productive to read about some random uh, project that someone's building, even if it's not clearly related to, uh, to what I'm working on at the moment. Draw. Thank you. A conversation that went everywhere and and, uh, immensely stimulating for it. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Draw. I've included a link to his uh, newsletter or his his posts. He's like I say, he's he's writing a book in real time about the future of work. And to some extent, you can see him writing that by subscribing to his, his premium post. So uh, do check that out. Fascinating interplay of ideas going on there. As I mentioned before, if you're interested in playing a part in this podcast and, and seeing the, the role that you can contribute, please do go to eatsleepworkrepeat.com forward slash host. I've been Bruce Daisley. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.